0: Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Okay, so they, they tried to kick me out of 1 John completely. They, they just pushing me further back, but I've got one more in our study of First John for this morning. Uh, 105 verses. Did you know there are 105 verses in First John? I did not count them. I did Google them. I'm trusting Google's right on that. I thought about backing it up, but I just was… I did not count the verses… 105 verses. Now, of course, we know John didn't write the verse numbers in when he was writing this letter. Line number one, line number two. He didn't do that, but I want to make a point about this. 104 of those 105 verses are about the same three things over and over again, repeating or deepening the teaching on three things. One is what is true Christianity versus fake? What is an imposter? It talks about what is the Christian struggle with sinfulness and sinlessness, and why do we still wrestle with that? And it talks about the fight to really know and understand and experience and give off true love over and over again, these three things, right? And it gets John, First John chapter 5, which is where we've kind of stopped, and We go straight back into those same three three things again. The first, the focus is on love, and then the focus turns to knowing truth from error, true faith, true Christianity from false teaching and distortions of truth. And then it goes back into that struggle with sinlessness. 104 verses do this. And when I do a, a book study, I don't know if you've done this before, but when I read a book of the Bible, a lot of times, especially in the letters, I try to find, is there a verse, one verse that kind of summarizes the whole thing? If I knew this verse... Then I would know what the entire letter was about. And I, I picked one out. I don't know if this is the right one. It's the one that summarizes it best in my mind. It's in chapter 2, into verse 5. Really, it's verse 6. For 104 verses, this is what John's been saying By this, we know that we are in him. This is how you know that you're on the right path. This is how you know where you stand with God. The one who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked you see how, if you've been with us, how that's kind of the summary of the entire letter and he unpacks it. This is how you know and love God. This is how you know and, and love others. And that's what the whole thing is about over and over again. 104 verses. And then there's one more verse. And when I came to read chapter 5, I read the first, first 20 verses. And then verse 105 or verse, first uh, 1 John 5, chapter 5, verse 21 It just stands alone there. It says, Little children, guard yourself from idols. And there's no mention of idols anywhere else in the letter. That word wasn't there. I did look. I did a a look all through it looking for the word idols. It's not there. So I turned the page thinking, Well, he's starting a whole new idea. So it's got to be on the next page. And then it wasn't. It was second John. So I, I was like, Well, my pages must be stuck together. I haven't ever read that part or something. And I'm like peeling them apart and it's not working. John just says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And either he gets to this point and something just stops him, he says it, and he's like, I'm going to suddenly change directions and then just stop my letter and and press send when it's gone, or else John is now summarizing that which he's been saying all along. Or in other words, John's saying… If, if you struggle to know if you're walking in the light, what keeps you from knowing truth from error, what keeps you from knowing how you stand with God and, and what walking in the light looks like, what keeps you from being able to love others faithfully and honestly in a Christ-like way is idolatry. That's what John's saying here. Walk back through what we've learned. If you struggle, if you have a problem with walking in the light or if you have a problem with confessing your sins or if you have a problem with loving your brother and sister, if it's a struggle for you, it's a problem that you, you're prone to get caught up into politics or culture wars, and that's what you think of most of all or first when it comes to the words Christian or the word church. You always go there first. Or if you're prone to believe or be led by false doctrines, sometimes you don't even realize it, but you just hear things and say, well, that sounds good, but later on you find it's not. I think John is saying that in those instances, your problem or my problem in those cases really is idolatry. And that is the sin that lies underneath all of those chaotic issues and the sins that might come along with them. It's idolatry. And there's a a Jewish philosopher named Moshe Habertal who talks about this. He says that idolatry is the, the most talked about sin in the entire Bible. Not Get this, not murder, not sexual sin, not lying, not cheating, not cussing, not any of these things, but idolatry. He said the central plotline of the Bible, the central story, is God's challenge of false gods and idols in our lives. That's from a Jewish perspective. He's got his Old Testament in view. A Christian perspective would add the New Testament to that and say that Jesus then comes and knocks down all of those idols simply by being better than all of the idols that his greatness, his goodness, his glory, his beauty, his power is beyond all of the idols and false gods that he actually delivers on his promises. And when a person sees and experiences that, the idols just start to fall down and he becomes the center of a person's life and the center of our worship. But idolatry is a big enough deal, meaning we deal with it so much. Think about this. Two of the 10 commandments are warnings against idolatry. You realize that there's 10 of them and 2 out of 10 warn about idols. And we're going to do a study on the 10 commandments next spring right after Easter. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to talk about how the 10 commandments are a mirror of our lives that show us the need for a savior and then we're going to look at that savior Jesus and how did he handle the 10 commandments? And I'm I'm excited about that series, but I'm curious, what's the first commandment? Do you know it? Was that That's right. It's no other gods before me. What's the second one? Do you know that one? Yeah, make no uh, no idols, no graven images, right? So the first one is have no other gods before me, none above me, none ahead of me. And the second is don't try to form or fashion God into your idea of what God should be like. Don't, don't try to create for yourself some version of God that is easier pleasing to you. And, and it's interesting that these are the first two commandments, number one and two, because three through ten kind of run out from one and two. Martin Luther wrote about this, the Reformer. The the commandments 3 through 10, if you're struggling with sinning in commandments 3 through 10, it's probably because you already have an issue with commandment 1 and 2, that you're struggling with 1 and 2, and that idolatrous heart is leading you into the rest of these things. And so, John writes at the end of his letter, little children, guard yourself. From idols. And if you don't, that's the way that you trip up everything else that we've been talking about all throughout this letter. What you think about when you think about Christianity is going to be some kind of style of life that you idolize or a political party or a par, or some kind of a politician that you have held up to be the one who will guide you, who will save you. You'll think about a moralism that is there. Some morals will save my life. They are the cure for society. That's what you will think about. And when you speak about Jesus and when you speak about the church, you may say some things that are right, but along with that, there will be some kind of distortion or twist and it will lead people away from Christ alone is their healing and saving in life, right? And you may not even realize that that's happening. We do this all the time, and we learned about it a couple of weeks ago. That's called the spirit of the Antichrist, where we have some truth about us, and yet we have allowed something to twist or distort it. And it's just the smallest of ways It seemingly to people, and yet it's the, the biggest of ways because it distracts people from the truth about Jesus and full dependence on, on Him. If We don't deal with idols. The rest of it will fall apart. John Calvin said, the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. And what he meant is you just give us the chance. Just give us the chance and we will replace God with any person, dream, goal, or ideal. Like that's a really great observation, Johnny. The heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. And by this time, I think the Ephesian church who's receiving this letter should absolutely have their attention captured. He's gone on. He said the same thing over and over again. They might have even been lulled into, okay, he's going into love again. He's going into struggle with sin again. But then out of nowhere, little children, guard yourself from idols. It should have our attention too. And this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about what those idols may look like, what those idols may do, in your life and how you may guard yourself from idols. And to do that, I'm going to look at some of the most helpful, clearest passages about about idols in the New Testament. Um, and I'll mention a couple of them, and I, if you're taking notes, write down to Colossians 3, 5 through 6, and write down Romans 1, 21 through 32, because I'm just going to mention them today, but you should go home and you should study those passages and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to teach you Colossians 3, 5 through 6, and Romans 1, 21 through 32 going to bring a lot of insight to our understanding of idols. But what I want to do this morning is start by reading Acts chapter 19. Why Acts chapter 19, Kevin? Well, Acts 19 is the story of the gospel coming to Ephesus to the people to whom that John is writing the letter First 1 John to. It's the story of the birth of the church at Ephesus. It's the story of the gospel coming to Ephesus. And when it does, idols begin to fall in their city, and a lot of people get really upset about it. Acts chapter 19. I, I want to give you a little detail about Ephesus to remind you of the background and what things look like there. Ephesus is the richest city and the richest region in the Roman Empire. So they are, can I say wealthy? Can I we say it out loud? Wealthy. I just want to make sure you're with me before we go any further. Okay, the city is diverse. It's cosmopolitan. It's multi-ethnic. The city has the largest temple, a house of worship in in the world. It's the temple of Artemis, also known as the temple of Diana. It was known to be one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. You can Google it. It's called the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis. At its center is a statue of the goddess Artemis, who was the prosperer and protector of the city of Ephesus. In fascinating detail, it's said to have been carved out of a a meteorite that had crashed to the ground in that area. They built this huge statue, which is kind of cool and kind of weird, but it's a religious city, highly religious worship of the goddess Artemis. They have the world's largest library. It's an educated community, and Ephesus is on a trade route. It's a place of business, of profit, a, a commercial community. Isn't it sad we live in a community that's nothing like this? Isn't it sad we live in just some rural stick that doesn't understand anything and can't relate to this passage at all? Of course not. This, This sounds an awful lot like the part of the world that we live in. And it may be a different time in a different place, but the same principles and the values that guide society there are true of society here. And so, there's a lot for us to learn from the city of Ephesus and the story of the gospel coming to town. So, look at Acts chapter 19, verse 1. It says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples there. And if you go back a chapter, you find Apollos had already been in Ephesus, and he was already preaching in Ephesus, but he didn't have a complete message. He was preaching the message of John the Baptist. He was preaching, repent and get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he was taught by a couple of people who were Christians in the city that there's more to the story. He didn't have in mind Jesus, who he is, that he was the Messiah. He is the Savior. He didn't have in mind what Jesus taught and what Jesus revealed when he was on earth. And when Paul Paul arrives in Ephesus, that's what he finds. A bunch of people who had heard the message of John the Baptist via Apollos and, and verse Uh, 4 says he began sharing the gospel all throughout Ephesus. Verse 8 says he went into the synagogue and began teaching in the synagogue. And for two years, verse 10 says, he's in this pattern. He spends his days teaching the gospel in the streets and preaching the truth in the synagogue. Verse 10, this took place for two years. Look at the result of this. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And as a result of this, listen, miracles. God chose to do miracles in their midst. As the gospel was being preached for the first time in Ephesus, God is performing miracles through Paul and people's lives are being turned over in the most amazing ways. And as this happens, idols begin to fall. And I want you to see what it looks like when idols begin to fall. And this is, we're going to look at verse 13. This is one of my favorite moments in the early church it's scary and hilarious. It would make the best Netflix TV show that could be made, I think. Verse 13. Start with this. But some of the Jewish exorcists, which is a funny way to start, there are Jewish exorcists and some of them who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord saying, "I adjure you by the Je- by Jesus whom Paul preaches." In other words, you demons get out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there are these seven brothers, the seven sons of Sceva, which he's the chief priest, one of the chief priests. So you go, well, I'm proud of my sons as a chief priest. I've got seven Jewish exorcist sons. And they're going around from town to town trying to do this thing. Verse 15, oh, my goodness. Can I use a voice? I'm going to use a voice. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. I don't know what demons talk like, but I just think that's good. I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you, (laughs) right? I I mean, I, I love this because the demon audibly voices, bro, I don't even know you, right? But they know about Paul, And I don't know how they know about Paul. I don't know if there's a demon Facebook and people are putting up posts about Paul and other Christians who are preaching truth and like, oh, did you hear this guy? You guys got to be looking out for this guy. But they know about Paul, but we don't even know about, who are you? And it makes me at times, I read that and I go, man, I really, I do hope and I do pray that my ministry is as pure and Christ-honoring and effective as this, that demons would know Kevin and not go, I don't even know you. It's also really scary to think about that, right? So the demons see the seven sons of Skeva come up, trying to dismiss them and say, I, I know all about Jesus and I know about Paul, but I don't know you. Verse 16: And the man, just one man in whom the evil spirit, this is good, pay attention the one man in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them and subdued all seven of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house. Somebody say, naked and wounded. This is in the Bible, and I love it. (laughs) And it's scary at the same time, right? Sidebar. Dustin had sidebars in his sermon last week, and I'm always learning from people around me, so I'm going to take a sidebar. This isn't The meaning of the text, it's not what's in front of the text, but it's something you might observe and pay attention to when you read this story. If you consider yourself a spiritual person and you want to go lead and help people spiritually, but you don't really know God and you're not really led by the Holy Spirit and you're not seeking to glorify and honor God in an honest way, but you're desiring to really be the one of influence and power who is glorified, you may be in a lot of trouble. And I'm not saying you may definitely be naked and wounded at the end of the the day, but but these guys were. And all I'm trying to say is that if we pay attention here, that this is real and serious stuff and real and serious spiritual forces are at work. You shouldn't take lightly trying to be a spiritual influence in someone else's life. You should do so with humility and complete submission to Jesus Christ and to the Holy Spirit's work through you. Sidebar over. Sidebar over. Verse 17, and you might share that with some TV preachers and and podcasters out there as well. Just take that along for the ride. Verse 17, this became known to all, this event that took place with the seven sons of Sceva became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Magnified. So, people see miraculous works being done in conjunction with the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's got their attention. And some of them, their lives are being turned over, but then others of them are standing up and saying, yeah, well, you know. There are other ways to go about this. And so they go with the things that they know and the things that they have built their life upon and the powers that they have been entrusting. And they try to set it up next to the power of God in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit through people who are submitted to Jesus Christ. And it leaves them in an awful situation of shame and disgrace and and fear And the idols begin to fall. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. Do you remember Moses and his brother Aaron being sent by the Lord to the Pharaoh to declare, let my people go? And God works miracles through Moses and Aaron. And the Pharaoh's spiritual guys come up and they go, yeah, we can do those kind of tricks too. Watch. And the miracles of God overwhelm and consume the tricks of man and they are left in shame and disgrace right? That's what's happening here in, in Acts 19. The miracles done by God in conjunction of the message of Jesus Christ overwhelm the people, and the idols begin to fall. Look at verse 18. Many also of those who had believed, they kept coming, and they were confessing and disclosing their practices. So, idols may be practices or behaviors that, that we repeat in our lives over and over again. They're confessing and disclosing these practices that were not in line with truth. And many of those who practice magic, yep, that's in the Bible, they brought their magic spell books together, and they began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted the price up of them, and they found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Sidebar number two, I I just had to know, if it's silver denarii in today's dollar figures, that would be like 5.5 million. That's the smaller piece of silver. If it was the larger amount, a talent of silver, which you may recognize from reading your New Testament, that would be in the billions, multi-billions, like 12 or something billion dollars worth. Point being, that's a lot of magic spell books being destroyed because people said, I once built my life upon these ideas, these ideologies that promised power and promised me the things that I want in my life, and I'm destroying them utterly and completely. So, what are we talking about? Are we talking about spell books and statues and artifacts or these idols? Is this what idols are? What are idols? I'll give you an answer. Idol, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. It's anything, It can be any person, place, or thing (laughs) that takes place of God in our lives. Paul put it like this in Romans 1. He said, it's exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. Or in other words, taking the God who is true, who is holy, who is just, who is right, who is pure, who is powerful, who is sovereign, and saying... That's great, but this, this, this guy had an idea, and it's a really good idea. He's a human, and he's not infinite. He's finite, but I really like the way he said it. I'm going to trust him and his way instead, right? So Paul says, an idol is anything that takes place of God in our lives. It's anything that we build our life on or center our lives around because it promises us security and satisfaction and joy, apart from God, anything. And here, these people are confessing and disclosing their practices. These practices are what we built our life upon. I was walking in a way, habitually living in a way that is not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I I don't want it any longer, get rid of it. And They're taking the books that promised these these powers, the books that promised answers to their ailments and to their confusion and to their disappointments in life, and they're going, this is trash. I don't want it anymore. Get rid of it. Burn this junk. I need it out of my life. They gave them up, and in its place, verse 20, now the word of the Lord was growing mightily, and it was prevailing in their lives. That's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because when idols are challenged, people have something to lose, right? And here, there's a, a man who has something to lose. There's a successful businessman in Ephesus. His name is Demetrius. Demetrius is a silversmith. That's his job. It's his company. Demetrius Silversmith Unlimited, right? He has a website. He has, he has a tax ID number. He, he's, he's, he's flowing. He has a, an online mail order business. And he makes specifically silver artifacts, little statues of the goddess Artemis. Remember her? Seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the goddess Artemis, and its center is the big statue carved out of a meteorite. He makes little Artemises, and he sells them to people that they might worship Artemis with their life, Right? And Demetrius is upset because there's enough people in town now who are rejecting relics, who are rejecting magic, who are rejecting rejecting trinkets, who are, are rejecting false gods and false teachings, and they are turning to Jesus alone for salvation. And they are turning to the word of God alone for giving them the course and the direction of their life and how they make decisions and how they may live and what the purpose of their life may be. And so Demetrius has a lot to lose. He's losing his livelihood and he's very upset that's because when the gospel is taken seriously by a person, we find that our idols are worthless. And there are people in Ephesus who have now encountered the gospel in a true and real way, and they found all that my life was once built on is worthless. Verse 23, about that time there occurred no small disturbance. No small, that means big. There was a big disturbance concerning the way of Jesus, the people of Jesus, the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business, that means a lot of business, to the craftsmen. And these craftsmen he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and he said to them, "'Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business.'" You see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. How silly of him." Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be regarded as worthless and that she, that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. Verse 28, when they heard this, the people he'd gathered, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. A riot started. People were coming out in the streets and they were dragging known Christians out into the streets. And they became the focus of hatred and of shouting and of violence. Verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another thing. For the assembly of people was in confusion and the majority did not even know for what reason they had come together. Doesn't sound at all like life today, does it? (laughs) What an interesting concept or or a commentary on the chaos in our own society where everybody is shouting something with vitriol and hate and anger and with pride and that I'm right and I know what's right. And everyone's screaming and mad, but no one really seems to know what's right at all. Just a lot of confusion and a lot of hot tempers. Verse 34, the people are chanting, Artemis, Artemis. Come on, guys. For two hours, it says. Riots and violence and screaming, Christians being thrown down in the streets. Is this all for trinkets? Is this all for magic spell books and statues and keychains and voodoo dolls? The answer is yes, and the answer is no. One of those that can have both be right at the same time. This is about their business, which is wrapped in evil, being kicked out from underneath them. This is about their worldview being shaken up and that which was culturally norm in their society being challenged by a greater glory and a greater good and something that is true. It's about the philosophy and religion that they tied themselves to, looking disgraced and discredited compared to the power of the true God and the name and the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about a guy, take religion and philosophy out for a minute, it's about a guy who had a business. And his business was more important to him than knowing God was to him. And look, it's not bad to have a business. It's not bad to be successful at business. It's not bad to have market goals and and to meet those goals. But it's bad when those things are loved so much that the good things become God things and they're more important than God. That's when they're, they're bad. It's about traditions being an idol. And boy, howdy, don't you know traditions become idols very easily. Churches know a lot about that. It's wild how anything, absolutely anything can seem to replace God in our lives, an idea, a fact, a figure, a system. I mean, Calvin was right. The human heart, the man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We're just constantly making them out of everything. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. It's anything that we build our life on or around because it promises us something, security, satisfaction, comfort, peace, joy, something, Apart from God, what is that in your life? Think about that. What is that in your life? I've seen people make marriage an idol. I've seen people make the desire to have children an idol. I've seen people make their job an idol listen, I have in seasons made being a pastor an idol. I've made preaching well an idol. I've made meeting budget an idol. I've made making ministry goals and and reaching them by the metrics I had set an idol. None of those things are inherently bad things. They're great things. Having a relationship, having a family, having a job, doing well at your job, being a, those are fine things. But when I love them too much, When I hold on to them too tightly, when my identity depends upon them, when my satisfaction depends on them, when I'm looking for those things to fulfill me, well, then they're bad. What's the one thing in your life where you think if I ever lost this, I'd never survive? I'd never make it. Maybe you haven't thought of it explicitly, overtly in that way. Maybe, maybe you haven't, but maybe you might now. If you you might think, you know, if I lost my job, good grief. I mean, all of my time, all of my energy, for years I've, I've put into this. My physical, my emotional, my intellect, all of it has been thrown into this career. If I lost my job, I'd have nothing. I'd be nobody anymore. Or maybe its a, I had this dream. I've had a goal my entire life. I, as a kid, I always wanted to, and I've been working towards that for years and years. I've been working towards that. If I don't get this thing then, I mean, that's it for me. All is is lost because my entire focus, my entire life has been about this thing. What is that thing for you? If you lost it, you would be absolutely crushed and devastated. Some of you, you immediately know what that thing is. Some of you, you may have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see what that thing is. When idols are challenged, people lose their doggone minds. Did you know that? That's what happened here in Acts 19. Artemis' prominence was challenged and threatened in Ephesus. And when that happens in our lives, we might respond in exactly the same way. When something we love too much, something we've built our life upon is threatened, most of our deepest emotions are tied up in those things, aren't they? Our self-worth, our identity, our value… our our sense of belonging, our sense of meaning is tied up in these things. And if those things are kicked out from underneath us, we have a tendency to lose ourselves. One pastor wrote about this. He was writing about idols. He commented, it's ironic. Listen to this. The ironic thing is that idolizing something ultimately keeps you from being able to enjoy that thing at all. You hear that? Idolizing something ultimately keeps you from being able to enjoy that thing at all. You panic and you fret about losing something so vital that you can never rest. For instance, and he gives an example, uh, wealth. He says, the wealthiest people are the most paranoid about their money. Gaining more of an idol only heightens the sense of fear because nothing other than God can satisfy and sustain your soul. Get that? remember this a couple weeks ago, Brandon was talking about the spirit of the Antichrist and and the, the battle for the mind. That, that John writes about, and he referenced back to the book of Ephesians to remind the people in Ephesus and remind us that the chaos and the confusion and the fighting and, and all the frustration, it's not about people. We're not at war with people, and people's ideas, not really. There's something deeper, something much more malevolent going on beneath the surface of people and their ideas and their, their values. We're talking about spiritual forces are at work. that we fight spiritual battles. Is that right? We're at war in, in a way that sometimes we forget. We're in a, a spiritual war where the Lord is fighting the brokenness of this world with his people. Keller's book, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. Man, it's such a good book. If you hadn't read it, put it on your list. He talks about how different idols communicate this message to us. He says the idol of money. It says to us, if you do, don't do enough to get more of me, I will make you miserable. But if you can get just a little bit more of me, boy, howdy, I can make you happy. Anybody ever heard from the voice of the, the idol of money? The idol of family says, if you lose me, your life won't be worth a thing. But if you gain me, you'll be complete. The idol of comfort, my goodness, this one stings all of us. Sacrifice your honesty. Sacrifice your integrity. Sacrifice your closest relationships for me. And I will give you rest. <laughs> Keller talked about how, how idols are, are harsh taskmasters. They promise, if you this, then I'll this, but boy, if you don't, I will, I will crush you. I will make you miserable. Your life won't be worth anything. You'll never have rest. And it's fascinating how the gospel is the opposite. Jesus says, you did fail me, but instead of destroying you, I will allow myself to be destroyed for you, Right? And how Jesus said, I'm not going to have you sacrifice to try to make your way to God, but I'm going to become a sacrifice for you so that you may have a true and open relationship with the Lord your God. And Keller wrote in his book that Jesus, unlike idols, that's what he wrote, Jesus, unlike idols, in Him we find the only God whom, when you obtain Him, will satisfy you. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. It's not true of anything else. Acts 19 is the story of the gospel coming into Ephesus and challenging the most precious idols of their city, of their day, of their lives. And when that happens, people lose their minds and they get violently angry about it. And that should mirror the story of the gospel coming into your life and into my life. Because when the gospel enters our life, it must tear down the idols of our lives. They must be challenged. They cannot stand if Jesus is to be our everything. And when that happens, we become insecure, we become fearful, we, we fight back. And, it, and it's, it's crazy because it's just the same as in Ephesus. The only difference may be that their worship was uh, overt and conscious and ours more often is, is subconscious and covert. We have this heart full of idols. Everyone has a whole museum of idols that they're constantly curating in their lives. But when Jesus enters, all of it, all of it must go. People do four things when it comes to idols in their lives, whether it be cultural or intellectual or relational, whatever the idol may be. They do four things. Love them, trust them, obey them, protect them. Love them, trust them, obey them, protect them. John gives four words in response. Guard yourselves from idols. Paul is even more adamant when when he writes in Colossians 3. He says, kill them real bad. (laughs) He says, put them to death. They must fall down. I mean, you keep going. Colossians 3, 5 through 6, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Whatever you've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for some image in the form of corruptible man, put them to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is, somebody say it, idolatry. Listen, when we fully embrace Jesus, when we put the full weight of our life on him, when we reject all else and we depend, live independence on Jesus Christ, the allure of idols begin to go away. They don't seem so shiny when set next to Jesus. That's what happened in Ephesus in Acts 19. Their magic spells didn't work like the power of God in Jesus Christ working through His people. And the reason for that is because the, the flip side of wrongly placed desire is rightly placed desire. Did you know that? The flip side of wrongly placed desires, we're trying to place them in our jobs and our family and whatever, flip side of that is rightly placed desire. And when you place your desire in Jesus Christ, only Christ can satisfy. That's why Jesus called himself the bread of life. He said, whoever comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The psalmist in 107 said, he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul. He is filled with what is good. And when we reject idols and we embrace Jesus, the Son, Jesus says, he who believes in me from his innermost being will flow the rivers of living water. So when you think about it, Verse 105, or 1 John five 21, isn't an odd ending to this letter. It's not turning a corner and then just dropping the mic, but it is the perfect and most fitting ending to that which he has been writing all along. If you don't guard yourself from idols, you will find yourself lost and distorted and twisted up in all kinds of things that Jesus does not intend for you to have in, in your life. When Jesus enters our lives, he leaves no room for idols. Idols are dead, but Christ is the living God. You get that? Idols are false, but Jesus is the true God. And that's the secret to abundant life. It's the secret to life that is real. And so, what are your idols? What have you put your faith and trust in? What have you held on maybe a little too tightly to for comfort, for peace, for satisfaction, for forming your identity or the direction you may go in your life? Is it a a party or a politician? Is it a system? Is it an ideal? Is it a dream? Is it a goal? Is it a relationship? What is it that you have put your faith in for satisfaction and peace and joy and comfort that is not The one who said to us, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn, for I am gentle and I'm lowly of heart. Jesus said, If you come to me, place your whole life under my lordship, in my protection, in my provision, you will find rest for your souls. What are your idols? Little children, guard yourself from idols. It's the end of 1 John. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, for some of us, it it comes quickly. We go, I know my idols. I've known them all along. I've been aware of them, and I've been pretending it's not a thing. But I've kept the books on my shelf. I've kept the, the trinkets on my in my drawer. I, I, I've I've tried to hide them and put plants in front of them so people wouldn't notice what I've really been building my life upon all along. And others, Spirit, we need help. Maybe the spiritual forces. I mean, in Ephesus we find my goodness where idols stand, demons. Are doing work. Maybe they've cleverly hidden somewhere within our inner workings attachments and trust and belief that really won't deliver what it promises in our life. And has taken place of an honest faith. And a true God who is sovereign and who is good and who is great and who has loved us. Spirit, help us where we're weak. Help us to lay these things down. We can't fight a spiritual battle with human weapons. So, would you help us, Spirit? Help us to lay down our idols, and as they were in Ephesus in Acts 19, in its place to be filled with the word of the Lord. And may your words, O God, prevail in our life, that we might have lives that walk in abundance, in accordance with your will and way, that we might find for our souls rest, that you promised Jesus, and that would be the most attractive thing to a society like the one we live in that is in complete chaos and full of anger and vitriol but doesn't even know why it's mad. May we be a people of the gospel who delight in our Lord, and may other people see it and come to know you through it. In Jesus' name, amen.